Any other any other announcements? If you guys can get out the um, we're going to divide our time roughly in half today between a discussion of the Brown and Plessy cases. Can you hear me? The Brown and Plessy cases is what we're going to start with. Take about half our time doing that and then start our discussion of King. And we'll finish our discussion of King in the second session uh, along with uh, Malcolm X. But let's start with uh, Brown, uh, excuse me, let's start with Plessy and Brown uh, right now. Maybe easier just to pull the, that uh, reading out of the binder or definitely have it at the ready. While you're searching for that, I'll give a little background on the Plessy case. Let's start there. We good? Plessy v. Plessy v. Ferguson was a decision that was rendered in 1896, one year after Booker T. Washington's exposition address, where he says that you know the white and black races could be, you know separate as the fingers and things social but one is in the hand for things where they will have a mutual interest and in particular he's thinking about employment relations there blacks will be willing to work white for whites if whites are willing to offer them uh, jobs this was seen by some of his critics as too much of an accommodation to the prevailing white prejudice in the South, essentially saying that we were not going to, we as blacks are not going to push for civil and political equality even though we deserve it. He says we aren't going to put that on the front burner in terms of our priorities as a people, especially in the South. Some said that this speech, given its publicity, and how much it resonated with uh, uh, some uh, blacks, but obviously many whites, uh, gave the green light to something like the Supreme Court decision that happened the very following year. <laughs> um, don't know if you can make or draw, uh, you know, you can connect those dots, uh, you know, directly, thank you. Uh, but... It is uh, interesting that the very next year the Supreme Court rules in an almost unanimous decision. Seven to one is just, might as well be unanimous. Uh, on controversial cases, the Supreme Court splits five to four, maybe six three. Uh, this case, we had one uh, judge who didn't participate. Seven to one, the Plessy case. Okay. Justice Harlan is the only dissenting justice. We're going to look at his dissent uh, a little bit today. But essentially, you got an entire Supreme Court coming down on the question of segregation in a particular way. Now, um, any of you teach this case, or at least, uh, do you have your kids read any, any portions of the case, or do your textbook do a pretty good job of laying it out? I have, I have a, actually a Supreme Court booklet, which gives the, yeah, and then questions. 
Oh, great. Okay, so the statute in question was what? What's happening in the state of Louisiana, among other places? Separate cars for whites and blacks. Okay. Yeah, so go ahead. And if you were one-eighth black, you were black. Well, this was, uh, it happened to be the case that Homer Plessy was one-eighth black. He had to inform the conductor. He was one-eighth. Um, I don't know what the rule was, but in general, this is what they call the principle of one drop, the one drop rule. Okay. Homer Plessy could pass for white. He had to inform the conductor that he was a black man, and then that's when they said, wait a second, you're violating this state law. Uh, whites could not sit in the black car. Blacks could not sit in the white car. Okay. So Homer Plessy uh, sued. And that's where you get this case, Plessy v. Ferguson. Um, what did the court rule? I mean, the court talks about the 13th Amendment and 14th Amendment. Uh, the court even acknowledges, in particular in the case of the 14th Amendment, that what was intended was uh, equality for citizens regardless of race. If you look at the bottom of the first page, um, this is after he talks about the 13th Amendment, which banned slavery. He didn't see how that is applicable in this case. Uh, even though your locomotion, your, your freedom to move from one point to another is restricted by the state when they say that you can't sit in one car, uh, but you can sit in another. He doesn't think the 13th, uh, 13th Amendment is uh, uh, it's really on point here. But then he looked at the 14th Amendment. At the bottom he says, the object of the amendment was undoubtedly to enforce the absolute equality of the two races before the law. So he acknowledges that the 14th Amendment is an amendment that is intended to enforce legal equality, but then goes on to say it can't produce social equality. Okay? Um, how does he defend the Louisiana statute in the eyes of the 14th Amendment? 14th Amendment has three pivotal provisions, right? A provision uh, regarding privileges or, hum uh, or immunities. Uh, that all citizens of the United States are, are uh, guaranteed privileges or immunities. Um, due process clause, there's also one in the Fifth Amendment, but this one applies not to Congress, but to the states. Life, liberty cannot be uh, taken from you or restricted except for due process. And then the big kicker, right? Equal protection clause, right? That all persons uh, in the United States are guaranteed the equal protection of the law. Go ahead. Go ahead. He goes and he talks that when he's talking about the 14th Amendment, he says, in determining the question of reasonableness, is that Liberty Act with reference, reference to the established usages, customs, and traditions of the people, and with a view to the promotion of their comfort and the preservation of the public peace and good order. Okay. So that's what he's going back. Because this is, you know, he, in essence, is saying there are parts of it that aren't there, but we have to keep it, that society will go crazy. If, if we let them come together. All right. So this pertains to a particular authority of the state. It's a term that political scientists have come to refer to as the police powers. The police powers are defined as the authority of government to promote the safety, health, welfare, and morals of a community. Safety, health, welfare, and morals. Um, this was customary, I mean, this is what government exists to do, okay? especially state and local government. Right? 
The federal government does not have police powers, traditionally speaking. Right? The federal government only deals with those uh, issues that affect all the states together or interstate uh, issues or issues dealing with states and foreign powers. Okay? State and local governments deal with police powers. And when we think of police powers, the first thing that comes to our mind is police. Right? But health codes, right? can you put a slaughterhouse in a residential neighborhood? Right? They get to make those sorts of decisions. In other words, no. <laughs> um, so safety, health, welfare, and morals. You know, uh, in terms of morals, like, wow, laws against, to promote morals, how would you do that? You know, laws, for example, that... Blue codes. Blue codes, for example. Uh, laws against juvenile delinquency, public indecency, these sorts of things. So this is the domain of states. And what's at issue here is does the court think it has the authority to tell a state essentially how to do its job? Okay. Now, the state, uh, the Supreme Court does review this case. It does review Louisiana State's code. But what do they say? When we're going to review something that is an exercise of police power, how much latitude how much discretion are we going to permit states before we say, unconstitutional, you've, you've crossed the line? How much discretion are we going to give? <coughs> that very passage that she mentioned, do you see the language there? Look at the first sentence in that paragraph. What do they say about their ability to come in and go, ah, you've made a mistake, you've crossed the constitutional line, uh, separating citizens on the basis of race on uh, st uh, railway cars is an unauthorized use of the state police power. It's a re reasonable man standard. Okay, reasonableness. Okay, it's a little different than the reasonable man or the prudent man standard, but what, what they're essentially saying is if the state thinks, not if we think, but if the state thinks in its judgment that it's reasonable, we're going to give them large discretion on the subject. Okay? We're not, in other words, going to come in with a fine tooth comb or a magnifying glass and closely scrutinize. In fact, if the state does something stupid or unwise, the best way to check that is the state's own citizens will pr provide the corrective. We as a court do not exist to ensure that states pass good laws. That is up to them. We're going to give them wide latitude, as he puts it. The case reduces itself to the question whether the statute of Louisiana is a reasonable regulation, and with respect to this, there must necessarily be a large discretion on the part of the legislature, which leads us to the passage you quoted. Well, what does large discretion mean? We're going to let them consider certain factors to determine whether it's reasonable. And what are those factors? Liberty to act with reference to the established usages. Gee, I wonder what that might be referring to. Customs. Hmm. And traditions of the people. Try not to be too sarcastic here as I read this. And with a view to the promotion of their comfort and the preservation of the public peace and good order. Good. Good. 
important point, especially as the law develops under the 14th Amendment with regards to racial categories. The presumption that the state is acting constitutionally, that's the court's default position. Um, if you're the suing party, Homer Plessy, the burden is on him to prove that what the state is doing is unconstitutional, and in this case, unreasonable. Uh, whenever the burden is on you to prove something, you're the one who has to do all the intellectual heavy lifting there. You have to do uh, uh, a lot of work. And in, uh, in go the ahead. field of appellate jurisdiction, in the, in the field of even trial court, it's generally perceived that those who bury, uh, bear the burden are burying themselves. You always want to fight for what is the standard of review. Right. Because the higher the standard of the review, the less the appellant is going to win. The lower the standard of review, the more the door is open. And this so the reasonable man standard is, is generally perceived in legal circles as, um, among the three levels, the, the middle one. Uh, maybe at that time, but the reasonable standard now is actually the lowest one. Well, at least I'm going to explain something in a second, see if this well, jives with, with your understanding. I'm talking about in 1896. Okay. What we see in Plessy will develop over time to be a, one of many, uh, three that I can think of, standards of review that the court adopts with regards to race. Today, the highest threshold is a standard called strict scrutiny. Okay? If we had one more day, next year we will, Lord willing, uh, we, if we had one more day, we would actually look at the affirmative action cases in Michigan. Grutter v. Bollinger, the law school, Gratz v. Bollinger, the undergraduate college. Uh, long before 2003, uh, certainly by the 60s and 70s, the court had adopted what was called a strict scrutiny standard. It's the highest standard that they have with regards to race. And that standard requires two things. One, not is it a reasonable regulation, but it is there a compelling state interest in a law or some public policy that is using race, making race a factor in their decision making. So that's the first question they ask. Is there a compelling reason that the state needs to use race? Some, excuse me, some compelling state objective that they're trying to meet. If it passes that, the next question they ask is, is the means that they adopted narrowly tailored? In other words, fine, uh, for example, the city of Richmond has historically been uh, uh, discriminating against blacks in uh, the awarding of contracts uh, by the government, and so we want to redress that historical uh, discrimination, and so we're going to have a program of set-asides, a certain percentage of government contracts for a certain ra uh, citizens of a certain race. But the next question was, is it, is, is it a narrowly tailored means? The problem in, in Richmond, this was the famous case, Richmond v. Crozon, in Richmond, uh, they decided that they would award subcon uh, these contracts to members of uh, the Aleutian Island Eskimos. Not just blacks, not just Hispanics, not just uh, American Indian, but Aleutian Island Eskimos. And there was no record of the city of Richmond ever discriminating against Aleutian Island Eskimos. And so what the court did in that case was that they said it's not that minority set-asides are unconstitutional, but the way you did it, you had a compelling state interest. 
but your means were not narrow enough so that the uh, 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 no undue harm would befall others who weren't beneficiaries of this program. If, if the city of Richmond could document that they had at some point in time discriminated against this very small minority, don't know if any even live in Virginia, if they could at least document that, then it would they could show a connection between the objective and this particular use of race, but they couldn't do it, and so in that case, they lost. Go ahead. Is that somewhat similar to the line of reasoning in the Bakke case recently? The Bakke case was in 78. Are you referring to Bakke, or are you, returning, are you referring to the Gruder and Graz cases? The University of Michigan case. Okay, the University of Michigan case. That's the Gruder case and the Graz case. Yeah, they applied strict scrutiny there. I, I'm not going to get into too much of the details there, but yes, uh, the, the two points I want to make here. Notice the strict scrutiny standard is not being used in Plessy. It wasn't developed yet. They develop it over time. Okay? As was pointed out, the reasonableness standard is a very low standard. You essentially say that the states pretty much can do what they want unless they do something really egregious. Okay? Um, that, that the court leaves that opinion starting around the World War II era, the 50s, and it's certainly in place by the time Bakke is ruled in 78, and it is entrenched in constitutional law. The precedent has set up that this is how the court rules. Notice, the court has never ruled that use of race is categorically unconstitutional, that the mere use of race per se is unconstitutional. Even with the court, for example, where seven of its nine justices have been appointed by Republican presidents, moderate to conservative-leaning uh, presidents, not five justices, it has never been the case in our history that five justices, a majority, have believed that the Constitution is a colorblind Constitution. Okay? Important uh, to, uh, to note that. Okay. All right, oh, comment and then we'll move on. The laws that well, required that they had separate cars, saying that this was a financial burden and so was. Um, I'm not aware. I'm not aware of anything along those lines. Um, could very could could be, but I, I'm not aware of that. Mm -mm. Of course, that's the strategy the NAACP adopts in the 20th century, the Margold strategy, which is if it, it, as the separate but equal doctrine becomes solidified in case after case, what the NWCP says is fine. If the court is unwilling to rule that segregation itself is unconstitutional, they're unwilling to go there, we're going to use the precedent of separate but equal to our advantage. We are going to essentially bankrupt state legislatures. We're going to force municipalities and state governments to actually provide segregated, uh, segregated facilities. Fine, but they better be equal. And southern states, right, historically had uh, a strong prejudice against strong government. <laughs> In other words, expensive government. Uh, they don't tax their citizens a whole lot. They're not in session for very long. Uh, and so the strategy of the NWCP until the Brown case was make them pay for their segregation. Okay? So if you have a golf course, a public golf course that's whites only, Better provide a black one. 
and it better be as good as the one you're offering already. I'm like, don't, right? <laughs> Golf courses, <laughs> swimming pools. Yeah, that's my little Homer moment there. Uh, Golf courses, uh, schools, hospitals, I mean, you name it. Guess what? In some states, especially in the Deep South, they said, fine, we'll close them. <coughs> Instead of being forced to integrate, they said, all right, you want to play that game? Close it. Okay. Even to the point of closing graduate schools and even K-12 through public schools. We see that as a result of Brown case, but I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, let, let, I'm, I'm pointing out a few things in this Plessy case, because we're going to find that the court actually paints itself into a corner that they can't or have a very difficult time getting out of by the time they want to rule against segregation in Brown. And one, I want you to see what this corner is. Uh, to conclude our point in that paragraph, he says, gauged by this standard, the reasonableness standard, we cannot say that a law which authorizes or even requires the separation of the two races in public conveyances is unreasonable. Cannot say that it's unreasonable or more obnoxious to the Fourth Amendment, 14th Amendment than what? The acts of Congress requiring separate schools for colored children. This is going to be an interesting fact in the historical record that you will notice Justice Warren makes no mention of in the Brown case. In other words, what is the court saying here? They're saying, gee, if the same Congress that passed the 14th Amendment is the same Congress that passed laws that segregate kids on the basis of race in their schools, if that Congress didn't think that what they were doing was unconstitutional, how are we as a court to, to, to conclude otherwise? He says, the constitutionality of which does not seem to have been questioned. So if you want to talk about a jurisprudence of original intention, what was meant by the 14th Amendment, we can look at Congress's own actions and we see, wow, they segregated schools on the basis of race and they passed 14th Amendment. They don't see any incompatibility. How is it that the court can see any incompatibility? That's going to be a problem for Warren, uh, Earl Warren in uh, uh, 1952 through 54 when they're, they're arguing this case. Now, next paragraph, paragraph, huge. The Brown case will come to this paragraph and take it on front and center, a direct assault on the next paragraph. What did the plaintiff ask or, uh, or, or, or say here about the law that the court doesn't buy? He says, we consider the underlying fallacy or faulty reasoning. You want to finish this for me? Good. Well, I just want to say that, you know, he's claiming that um, by having separate cars that they are saying that they're inferior to the whites. That one of the races, yes, the black race is inferior to the whites by the mere fact that they're separating them. Right, Good? and the court says you're putting this distinction on yourselves. <coughs> that you are, you are casting the inferiority on yourselves by thinking that way. Okay, now what's the, re let's, let's see what the court's argument here is. Why do, how could they possibly claim that? I mean, because, you know, we're going to see it in Justice uh, Harlan's dissent. He says, nobody in their right mind, nobody who is honest will say with a straight face, oh, we passed this law not intending any of the races to feel bad about themselves or to feel inferior. He says, everybody knows that these segregation laws were passed to enforce white supremacy, to reinforce the notion uh, that blacks are inferior, inferior to whites. To say otherwise would be lying, would be dishonest. 
How does the court respond? He says it's a fallacy. And how do they prove it? They prove it by saying the following. Yes, he says, has there been a time where blacks were actually the majority of the political power and uh, could, could it very well be, be the case? This is Louisiana after all. Could it very well be the case in the future that that would, that would happen? He's like, yes. And he said, if there came a point in time where blacks were to pass the exact same statute, because they don't want to be around whites now. They're in control. And if they were to pass the exact same statute, would whites feel inferior as a result of that statute? Would it generate a feeling of inferiority on the part of whites? And he says, no. And you know why that's the case? Because the law itself is indiscriminate in terms of the, of the burdens it imposes on the citizens. Simply put, it would be different if the statue said, whites, you pay for a first-class ticket, you can sit anywhere in the railway car that you like. Blacks, you pay for the same amount a first-class ticket, but you can only sit here. Would that pass muster under the 14th Amendment? No. No. Even this court <laughs> would have ruled that that was unconstitutional. He said what was, well, he didn't say what was clever, but what was uh, reasonable by the state of Louisiana is that the burden they imposed was an equal burden. It wasn't blacks can't go wherever they want. It's blacks and whites can't go wherever they want. Blacks can't go in the white car and whites can't, whites can't go in their, the, the black car. So because the burden falls upon citizens equally, regardless of race, even though race is used to distinguish where they can go on this railway car, Justice Brown ar argues it's a fallacy to think that this law is unfair to blacks and, not, and, and fair to whites. He says, no, the burden falls equally. The blacks themselves could pass the very same statute and whites wouldn't freak out about it. Therefore, if you feel inferior, whose fault is that? Is it the fault of the state? No. Whose fault? Yours. Yours. That's just the way you're choosing to construe the statute. Go ahead. That's like saying the rich man and the poor man can sleep under the same bridge. Go ahead. That's a famous uh, allusion. Go ahead. The idea that, you know, uh, if poor people have to have no homes and they have to sleep under a bridge, well, they're not being discriminated against because a rich man can sleep under the bridge, too. Okay. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. Good. There, there is a kernel of truth, though, in that last sentence. And it's really been the American problem. And that is no legislation, I don't care where it's passed, I don't care by whom it's passed, can change the hearts of the people. And that's what the last sentence of that paragraph says. If the two races are to meet upon terms of social equality, it must be the result of natural affinities, mm -hmm. a mutual appreciation of each other's merits, and a voluntary consent of individuals. And that remains today. That, that line has not changed in American history. You can legislate all you want, but until you change the hearts of the people, you cannot change their minds. Okay. If the heart is closed, simply because I look at you, Lucas, and say you are a black man, and I want nothing to do with you. If my heart is closed, that you may have human intelligence, that you may have human qualities, that you may be uh, 
my equal or even greater than my equal, no legislation can change that. This is uh, a line, in fact, that uh, George Bush mentioned in his uh, speech uh, in favor or after the, at the signing of the Voting Rights Act, right? That changing hearts is one thing, changing laws is easier than changing hearts, something to that effect. Now, what does, uh, what does the dissent, how, do they res uh, how does he respond? What's that? I'm, I don't see the contradiction there, but... Well, it's, it's, it's saying it's okay for us to take that right away from both of you because we're saying you can't choose to sit together on a bus or a train. You can't choose in a, a, in a public a In a public conveyance. It doesn't say that you can't have dinner with whomever you choose in your privacy you of your own home. But it's, you can't do that in public, and why shouldn't I have the right to? I mean... No, I know you're 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 making you're making uh, uh, Justice Brown's um, Justice uh, Harlan's argument. Okay, so that that's fine. Go ahead. We'll get there. In regard to um, legislation changing the hearts of people, I always explain to my students that legislation can change the hearts of people. Um, that you know when the government takes an action, they send a message. Yes. And then Yeah. And, and how that can internalize the people and affect their actions. It could and reinforce sentiments. And how Brown versus Ford sent a message that, that black people and white people are equal. And how over time, you know, at, at my school it's about equally split, black, white, Hispanic. So I always say, you know, and, and now, you know, we have little racial class problems in our school, but is it a problem for you all to be here in the same classroom? And, and it's not how it's not really an active thought most of the time, mm -hmm. how, you know, like a Brown versus Ford decision can change people's feelings over time. And, and we look at, at issues of today and, and, uh, and, and, you know, does the government send a message that, that gay people and straight people aren't, don't have the same rights? And, mm -hmm. and if there was a law, um, you know, look at, at state Supreme Court decisions and such, how, what message do, those, do they send and how, how people internalize that, how it affects their, their thinking towards other people. Okay, good. Well, I was just, and actually I'm jumping ahead, but um, isn't the Brown case the first court case where they actually use sociological studies in the, in the arguments and in the study? I don't know if it's absolutely the first one, but it's clear, they clearly do use them there. Um, uh, Justice, uh, there was. Uh, I may need the help of our in-house counsel over here. Uh, but Brandeis, the so-called Brandeis brief, uh, that was done before this case. But it, a big deal was made of the fact that the court 
relied on, in, in part, on these sociological studies. By the way, uh, Thurgood Marshall did not like the appeal to sociological and psychological studies. Yeah, that's right. Um, he, he is on record as saying this, ah, the Clark Dahl test, and we're going to talk about that test a little bit. He didn't, he didn't think that was the way to go. So we're straying away from the Constitution, away from a, a, a look at the law, uh, and, and moving to areas where, to call them scientific, it, it may not necessarily uh, hold water. Uh, other hands on this point? Je let's, look at just a, let's look at the dissent. Uh, we need to get to Brown uh, quickly here. But let, this, is the, the, this is one of the most famous Supreme Court dissents uh, in American history. Uh, think about the role of dissents. You were outnumbered. <laughs> Why are you even talking? <laughs> I mean, it's like the minority report. Fine, you complain or whatever, but you're not the law. You lost. Uh, why do you issue a dissent? You issue a dissent to explain that there was an alternate way of ruling in this case, not only the conclusion, but how you get to the conclusion, and the hopes that perhaps someday your dissent can become a majority opinion. If you get changes in the court, whether changing the individual justice's mind, rare, or a change in actual justices, more common, okay? Infrequent, but more common. The hope is that you can provide a rigorous enough, legal enough, presidential enough argument that in future someone will adopt your dissent as a, as a precedent uh, uh, for their decision, their uh, ultimately majority decision. Harlan's dissent has never been adopted by a majority of the Supreme Court because Harlan argues for what kind of constitution? Uh, not Harlan. Yeah, just as Harlan. A colorblind constitution. He did not coin that phrase. That phrase has been bubbling around for, for, for decades, uh, state and federal level. Um, but he's the one that makes it famous. Can somebody read that uh, passage uh, in, in his dissent? However apparent the injustice of such legislation may be, we have only to consider whether it is consistent with the Constitution of the United States. Where are you? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't read the whole dissent. Oh, okay. I don't have time. I don't have time. For the whole, we don't have time. How about the, the paragraph that begins, the white race? Okay. Okay. Go ahead. The white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country, and so it is, in prestige, in achievements, in education, in wealth, and in power. So, I doubt not, it will continue to be for all time. If it remains true to its great heritage and holds fast to the principles of constitutional liberty. But in view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior, dominant, ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind, and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or of his color, 
when his civil rights as guaranteed by the supreme law of the land are involved. Okay, good. Okay. Uh, very famous uh, quotation there uh, in Supreme Court history. Our Constitution is colorblind. Um, perhaps one of the reasons this dissent hasn't been adopted is because he seems to be saying that whites are superior in some way, but you notice he doesn't say they're superior by nature. He states a simple demographic fact, that they are superior in the things that he listed. But when it comes to your civil rights, in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the Constitution, those things are irrelevant. Um, in his mind, it isn't up to the court to have discretion on the matter of race. He doesn't think race as a category should be used. He doesn't think it, it can, be reasonable. Uh, can be reasonable. His standard is higher than today's strict scrutiny standard. His standard is no use of race is allowed. No state legislature can use race well, <laughs> uh, can use race in a way that will benefit all of its citizens. Race, he thinks, is just irrelevant when it comes to affording people their civil and political rights under the Constitution. A reminder again, no five justices at the same time in our Supreme Court history have ever agreed with that statement. Okay? I leave it to you to, to discuss uh, on your own whether you think that's a, a position we should move towards as uh, a nation or not. But as, as, uh, as eloquent as that statement sounds, it's never gotten a, a majority of the court. That's Justice Harlan's, Justice Harlan's point. That's his point precisely. He doesn't want the court to decide when it's being used well and when it isn't. Uh, Justice Brown thinks, no, you know, we're going to leave. We're going to grant uh, large discretion, and now the court, of course, has developed this two-pronged uh, approach to it. Uh, yeah. A any other comments on this before we move on? Oh, okay. Um, without using activism, he said he rejects that, and he thinks that they should have used Harlan's dissent to make their decision, and that's how he would have ruled based on what Harlan Okay. Interesting. It would be interesting to see uh, in any of the affirmative action cases that Scalia ruled on in the minority, of course, um, if he ever cites Harlan's uh, dissent in his dissents. Uh, that would be an interesting study. I want to call your attention to one more passage that deals with the question of can laws change hearts. Um, what does Harlan think on this question? It's in, the in the next paragraph, the last several sentences there, he says, 60 millions of whites are in no danger from the presence here of 8 millions of blacks. The destinies of the two races in this country are indissolubly linked together. And the interests of both require that the common government of all shall not permit the seeds of race hate to be planted under the sanction of law. What can more certainly arouse race hate? What more certainly create and perpetuate a feeling of distrust between the races, these races, than state enactments, which in fact 
proceed on the ground that colored citizens are so far, excuse me, so inferior and degraded that they cannot be allowed to sit in public coaches occupied by white citizens. So this justice seems to think that even if laws can't change people's minds right away, he certainly thinks laws can reinforce and perpetuate a certain way of thinking among the citizenry that he thinks is actually subversive of the free society uh, that it's intended to uh, protect. I just find it intriguing that even in 1895, legally the white and black races were separate, they had trouble with a case where the plaintiff was only black because he said he was. Right. And in today's world, trying to apply some of those standards would be even more difficult because yeah. we have many people who could claim membership in two, three, or four races. Then you, then you, I mean, ask a very simple question. Who determines who you are? Yeah, yeah. And how do you do that? The one-drop rule said, implied what about the black race? That it was a taint. Okay. But that just a little bit of blackness yeah, but messed up your whiteness. <laughs> wow. Who's inferior here? Americans. Who's got the problem? I'm sorry, go ahead. But they felt the same <laughs> way about Native Americans and Chinese and Arabs and anybody else who wasn't quote-unquote white, whatever that meant. Yeah, there's a, there's this great book. I'm not sure. I don't know. This would be an interesting, interesting experiment to try this book on your the students. George Schuyler. You guys familiar with this guy? Wrote a book called Black No More. Do <laughs> you want to tell us what the plot of this book is? It, it's, what happens is that a scientist comes up, well, no, someone comes up with a, a subjective fact that allows uh, black people to turn white, become white, and everything becomes white. And they try to infiltrate white society, and they meet white women, some get married, um, and then when they have children, That's actually pretty good. <laughs> if that's Sneeches. The star-bellied Sneeches with stars upon bars. Yeah, if, if, a, if, a, if, a, if a book entitled Black No More would be a problem <laughs> on your campus, go to Dr. Seuss. Star-bellied Sneetches makes a pretty good uh, uh, approximation. Go ahead, Mark. <laughs> I thought Dr. Seuss was pretty serious in what he was trying to accomplish there. Yes. So white children, white children or white kids. They will say, oh, it's German kids, English kids, French kids, parents working in the 
Mm-hmm. I think that's 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 true in part. I can't. The title just blanked my mind. So, so one, two, about the white man that painted himself black. He wrote a nonfiction. Oh. Black like yeah, black like, like me. me. Closing comments on uh, the Plessy case before we move to, before we rush headlong into the Brown case, which is a very short case, but uh, I want us to go over it carefully. I, I have to say that I find it interesting you didn't read the next yeah. line of that paragraph. Go ahead. That, as all admit, is the real meaning of such legislation as was enacted in Louisiana. That's a huge presumption on the part of Justice Harlan. Would, do you disagree with it? Not from the sense that he is arguing for a colorblind constitution, but it cuts against the whole grain of his argument. How so? Well, he's, he is laying on the people of Louisiana and anybody else who, who may try to invoke legislation for good or bad <coughs> with respect to race relations that the Supreme Court can somehow see into the hearts and minds of the legislators? Yeah, he's, lo he's looking at the, it's the intent question, precisely. Mm -hmm. It's a great paragraph up until that line. And, and I think my understanding, and I've, I've read this case in its completeness in several times in several different capacities in law school, is that that line, that, the line obviously doesn't stop there. And the continuation of that line is just as important to what precedes it. Yeah, but I think the fact that that's there, I mean, gives us enough to know the line of argument, which is to say that, yeah, he thinks he can discern the intention of the lawgiver here, knowing the prevailing customs and usages, et cetera, and he thinks... I'm not suggesting he, that he, you he, assign he, all the other choices first. I don't think you need to. I think no, it, it, the, point, the very point you're making can be made from that sentence uh, alone. We don't need to see the rest of that drawn out, uh, and it's enough for your students to discuss. Is it the, the, the appropriate... Uh, is, it, is it legitimate for a court to ask the question? And that's not just look at the law, the way Justice Brown is saying, we just look at the words, okay? Is it appropriate for the court to ask the question, what is the intention of the lawgiver, so that we know what the objective of the law is? Uh, Justice Brown claims to, that it, this is something not only that he knows, that everybody knows why they passed this law. Uh, even if he's correct, the question you're raising is, is it legitimate for a court to try to start sifting motives precisely because you can't read into someone's heart? Oh, yeah, I think that's a legitimate point to, 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 to dispute.
Let's have a colored line. So let's have a colored line. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not really sure that that accomplishes much. What's the other? to just kind of keep racism alive and well. Why would a colorblind constitution keep racism alive and well? I think it kind of goes back to uh, like positive and negative liberties. Like the government not acting to confront racism, I think, allows it to survive. By having a colorblind constitution, it's just saying, like, well, us, the government, we're not going to get involved in dealing with race problems in America. I, 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 you I'm not sure that that's what. I was just saying, I'm not sure that that's what uh, Justice Harlan is arguing. I think he sees a colorblind constitution as the means to attacking racism. And for example, just to be crude about it, I mean, or simple about it, Louisiana made reference to race with regards to a law regulating public conveyances on a railway car. Brown is saying, uh, Harlan is saying. Oh, you use race to decide where, no, can't do it. Constitution's colorblind. That seems to undermine race sanctioned by the state rather than perpetuate it. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out why we would think colorblind constitution says that the court isn't going to look at race at all. Because it would also negate things like affirmative action. Like the government yes, it would. It would. It would. Okay. All right. Raymond. I just wonder, okay. When the Constitution was written, was it, is it a colorblind Constitution? What, is there any mention, I just throw this out, of race in the Constitution? Or was it meant for, it applies to everyone? Okay, two different questions. You guys know the answer to the first one, obviously, because race is not mentioned in the Constitution anywhere. Just okay? Indians, Slavery right? isn't mentioned. Indians. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, except for Indians, that's right. Uh, but uh, except for that particular reference in the Three-Fifths Compromise, uh, there is no mention of race. When it talks about freedom, when it talks about justice, when it talks about the mechanisms and structures of government, what it can and cannot do, and even, in, and if you, even if you want to add the Bill of Rights, there's no mention. It refers to people either as persons or as citizens. Um, there isn't any qualification to that. Now, it's a separate question. And we've had some discussion, especially in Philadelphia, about it, uh, whether that constitution was therefore meant to be protective of all citizens, regardless of race. Uh, the Dred Scott case, which we didn't have time to discuss, uh, Tani believes that no, that that constitution was meant for white people, that blacks uh, had no rights that the white man was bound to respect. And it took two dissenting justices, Justice McLean and Justice Curtis in particular, Justice Curtis, to point out that in five states, you know, blacks were allowed, including North Carolina, one southern state, were allowed to vote, uh, had the, the privileges and immunities uh, that all citizens had and the rights thereof. Uh, and the Constitution didn't restrict those. Uh, so, I mean, that's, a, that's an abiding uh, question that we have. Just one quick comment. Back to Greg, um, if the Supreme Court would have looked at this with the colorblind idea of Harlan, possibly the oppression, and Graham's this is hypothetical thinking, but uh, possibly the oppression that Greg's referring to wouldn't have happened to the degree that it did. Yeah, that's the argument that people would make. Uh, and there's counter arguments to that, uh, to be sure. 
is involved, and they have had to make decisions and take steps, but you know, we're talking 50 plus years since Brown, and there's still discrimination, and there's still resentment, and there's still... Makes you wonder whether... You know, I mean, my mom graduated from high school, and I have to say, in 1969, and she, her class was all white. Mm -hmm. The, the, but that raises, for me, it raises the question whether we can use race in a way to get rid of race. I think that's a very debatable proposition. It just keeps it in the forefront of people's minds instead of trying to get past it. Well, it's not even race. It's like Marilyn said. It's even you know, sexual orientation. Or I was just mentioning, you know, they've done a documentary where they put someone in a fat suit and they, can, and they see how people perceive them differently. We live in a world where, sadly, are different, and I think we need to move towards making people equal across the board, not just where race is concerned, even though that has been at the forefront of the discussion. Yeah, I mean, that that's, in a sense, what the court has been wrestling with in a very concerted and deliberate way since the Civil Rights Act of 1964, because the Civil Rights Act, I mean, how we interpret that, especially in higher education, for example, I mean, that's, that came up uh, in the Bakke case in 78. And now, of course, in the Grutter case, 25 years later, um, yeah, that's precisely what's at issue here. Um, that's the same reason that a lot of schools have gone to the uh, uniforms, because of the economic differences. Peer pressure. Okay. Last comment, and then we got, we're going to move to Brown. Well, Go ahead. This is like really jumping ahead, because when you said higher education, one of the things that I think all of us have experienced through going to college is what has continued like a resentment is there's this minority scholarship. I can't apply because I'm not that minority. And it just continues that resentment. You know, if you want a higher education, maybe we should all be on equal playing field there. And I understand why it's been that way. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, Thurgood Marshall, when he uh, writes his opinion in the Bakke case, which no other justice joins, okay, he had friends on the court, Brennan in particular. Uh, it's not a liberal conservative thing, right? Uh, Marshall writes an opinion in Bakke that no other justice joins. And in his opinion, um, if we had time to talk about Marshall's opinion, this is what I would say. Uh, <laughs> In, in, in his opinion, his, the counter-argument he would offer is we've had affirmative action in the other direction for centuries in this country, uh, san uh, sanctioned not only by state legislatures and courts, not only by federal uh, actions, but by the Supreme Court itself. Okay? Uh, the Supreme Court was the one that overturned the original, the first Civil Rights Act, right, 1875, and the other Civil Rights Acts uh, in that period of time. Uh, for him, in 1978, to finally discover that the Constitution really was meant to be colorblind all this time, he just couldn't bring himself to do it because the, the nation decided to be colorblind when the color of the plaintiff was white. white. He says, irony of ironies, right? Up until 1978, right? No, it's not a colorblind constitution, da 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 da. But finally, when a white person sues under the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and under the 14th Amendment, 
suddenly the court realizes, oh, we've got a colorblind constitution. Right? At least there are some on the court, four, not five, but four. Uh, he just couldn't bring himself to think that because of centuries of legal sanction of white supremacy, affirmative action in the other direction, that a society that suffers the legacy of that, he couldn't see that the Constitution would bar states from trying to undo the damage that was done, create opportunities that would have been there ordinarily had we not had the sanction discrimination that we have. This is the argument he offers, is that surely we can use race in a benign way. And yes, will some white citizens not have an opportunity as a result of, for example, in that case, the UC Davis Medical School reserving, was it 16 slots out of 100? 14. 14? OK, 14 slots. The other 86, doesn't matter what your race is, everybody competes for that. But 14 were reserved for disadvantaged students, which in practice meant racial minorities. Uh, they were admitted under much lower GPA and MCAT scores. Okay. Marshall's argument was the state can do that, and even if those 14 slots, maybe a white person, maybe 14 white people would have gotten those, uh, would have uh, uh, secured a slot there uh, if it weren't for that program. Aren't they harmed? He says, yes, but it's a harm, it's a burden that society should be willing to bear now to reverse the damage that was done, the limitations on opportunities uh, that were uh, imposed as a result of affirmative action in the opposite uh, direction. That's the line of argument uh, that, that Marshall offered in that uh, uh, opinion in Bakke. So I'm just trying to do equal time here since you know, we're, we're hear, hearing a lot of arguments in one direction. Since we don't have the material, I'm giving it to you uh, uh, verbally, as it were. Quick. Of course, the great irony is, under our system, if the Constitution is silent, it allows the states to make laws. If we became officially colorblind, or you can't take race into consideration, mm -hmm. then things like hate crimes could not be punished as such because they would take race into consideration as part of Precisely. the crime. Yeah, and some people don't have a problem with that. Because mm -hmm. you could still punish the action without reference to the intention. So, so some people don't have... Remember, hate crimes... I mean, this was George Bush when he was governor, right? This was his point, was, look, we already have laws on the books for assault, battery, rape, murder, etc. Um... And, and people thought it was flip when he said, you know, I can't kill a guy more than once, right? An execution is an execution. People thought that was flip. And, and that was, and what he was trying to say is, look, how serious do we take any type of crime where someone is bodily injured in this way? Um, to the fullest extent of the law. Lady Justice holds a, a sword. I mean, somebody made the reference, that, uh, I think in Philadelphia, that the sword was, represented the swiftness of the law. I always thought it meant capital punishment. I always thought that it meant the, that, uh, that the fullest extent of the law would be off with your head. Capital. Kappa. Anyway, we're going to get to Brown. Get your Brown out while she makes her comment. Get your Brown case out. Creating a second? A second rate. Uh, in other words, 
you graduated because you were in this minority group. Mm -hmm. You're not as good at dominance. Okay, so this dual track system, right. Dual track. Okay. So that would create a, a somewhat inferior, although you're in the school, you're you know, sep separated because you The other point was Sandy Day in the Michigan decision said she upheld it, but she hoped that eventually there would no longer be a need for affirmative um, action with a special. Right, for her. Yeah, again, if we had time, <laughs> uh, I, I teach that case every year. Uh, teach it in the master's program at National University. Teach it at my home institution at the Washington Lee University in my black American politics class. Um, Justice Ginsburg took issue with that statement of O'Connor's. She said, simply because Justice O'Connor thinks we might not need it in 25 years, maybe we will. I mean, so she was not willing to be bound by that portion of the opinion. So, so Justice Ginsburg distinguished her own, she wrote a separate con a concurring opinion saying, we might need it 25 years from now. In other words, Justice O'Connor might be a little too sanguine on, on, on this subject. Or maybe she was holding out some hope that we would be aggressive enough. <coughs> Ginsburg? No, no, Justice O'Connor. Oh, O'Connor, certainly. She, she, it, it's a big thing for her to, to, to again, it's the narrowly tailored question. For O'Connor, she doesn't like the fact that you're treating people as a member of a group rather than as individuals. She says the 14th Amendment is all about individual rights, not group rights. So if you're going to have affirmative action, she wants it as narrowly tailored as possible. And one indi indication of it is if the policy is on record as being a limited one, i.e., the, the institution itself that uses it has a sunset clause, or at least some statement to the effect that we don't intend to do this forever. We, it will sunset, it will die out 10 years hence or 15 years hence, or we constantly evaluate it to see if we still need it. That's what she likes. Okay, now, she's no longer on the court. So we'll see what the court will do, how this, the, the development of the strict scrutiny standard will proceed under this uh, uh, new, somewhat new court. All right, Brown, woo, we've, we've got a hustle here. Okay, Brown, right, the issue, can a state segregate children in schools, K through 12, on the basis of race? Okay. Equal protection of the laws is, uh, is the constitutional uh, provision that is at stake here. Um, the court begins. Now, this is a case, that, of course, it comes from a number of, of states, four states, Kansas, South Carolina, Virginia, and Delaware, and also the District of Columbia. That's a separate case, Bowling v. Sharp. Okay, uh, and they adjudicate that one on the basis of the Fifth Amendment. Okay, this one because it applies to states, it's the Fourteenth Amendment. Okay, um, how does the court proceed? It first starts with history. Okay, and what does it say about history? In other words, how do we know how to apply the Fourteenth Amendment in the case of segregated schools? Let's see if we can figure out what the Fourteenth Amendment meant when it was written. What does Warren conclude? On the basis of a unanimous court, right? 9-0 decision. Separate facilities are inherently unequal. Okay, you're jumping right to the, the end. I'm, just, I'm asking a specific question about history. <laughs> okay, you're right. I mean, that, that's, that's the conclusion. Uh, but what does he say about uh, the historical record on this? Because this is how it differs from Plessy. Yeah, if you look on, I'm looking at this, the court's pagination, 489 at the top, very, very, very top right corner, 489. It says, re-argument, remember this case started in 52, 
It had to be re-argued. Remember why? Chief Justice died. Uh, it was, <laughs> I forget who it was. You, you might be able to remember. One of the other justices said uh, it was <clears throat> one of those instances where he thought it might prove the existence of a god. <laughs> who was it? Frankfurter. Frankfurter. Uh, According to uh, Michael Klarman, I uh, had you guys read uh, 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 an excerpt from his book, a recently published book on the subject of race in the United States. Um, he went and looked at the notes that were available from various justices and did a count, and he said, had that justice not died, that this case would have been a split decision, most likely against the conclusion that Warren drew. And it had nothing to do with you know, oh, you know, we had racist judges, and he says, no, even the justice that, that wanted to, over, to overturn uh, se uh, segregation in, in public schools didn't have, could, couldn't see themselves with a legal leg to stand on. They just, the precedents were, weren't there, and I'm going to explain that in a second. Go ahead. I was just going to comment, I just thought that current court makeup just didn't like to overturn precedents, so they were very stickler to it. Okay, and the, the question of precedent, right, um, what had happened? It was the Margold strategy. Unfortunately, what had happened is case after case, the NAACP won. But what did they have to use to win? The Plessy Doctrine. So uh, the, the great irony and the great difficulty that the NAACP uh, was placed in by 1952 and the court was, yes, yeah, stare decisis, the Latin term uh, for essentially let the decision stand, that we, we hold on to precedent. The problem they got was every time they'd win a case, what were they doing with the Plessy precedent? In, yeah, they were getting it more and more entrenched in the law so that by the time they want to come to a different conclusion, not that separate has to be equal, but that the mere fact of separating produces inequality, that segregation is ipso facto, by its very nature, unconstitutional, they had no precedent to appeal to. So it, it's a, a, a very curious argument that the court has to come up with not only to win or to produce the decision that they produced, but to produce a unanimous opinion. Warren wanted a unanimous opinion. He thought the only way they could get this decision to stick was if it was unanimous, as if the whole court spoke with one voice. And that's why it's, it's, uh, the argument proceeds the way it does. So on that page, he says, re-argument was largely devoted to the circumstances surrounding the adoption of the 14th Amendment. He goes on, he says, this discussion and our own investigation convince us that although these sources cast some light, it is not enough to resolve the problem with which we are faced. At best, they are inconclusive. They brought in all the famous historians from the Ivy Leagues to come in and tell them what did the 14th Amendment mean and what did they unfortunately conclude. They weren't inconclusive. They saw what Justice Brown saw in Plessy. Man, the Congress, the same Congress that passed the 14th Amendment, segregated schools. Now, I'm not talking about segregated railway cars. They, segregate, they, they dealt with the very issue that the court is dealing, with, is dealing with here and had no problem with it. So the very thing that Plessy brings up, Earl Warren ignores in his case. In other words, he knows that's there, but he can't mention it. So what's the strategy? If he says, you know, it casts some light, mm-hmm, I know what light it casts. It's inconclusive. What do they turn to next? Because they can't go there. Where do they go? Okay. What pivotal change happened in history? Uh, general taxation for 
All right. The nature of education has changed in the United States. Earlier in the United States, where did we find common schools, if there were any? New England states, at best. And then some other places, spotty. South of the Mason-Dixon line, forget about it, right? Schools for blacks, how about schools for whites? Not happening. It begins to happen as a result of the Freedmen's Bureau, among other things, but it's a very spotty thing and it's up to the states. In other words, the states at that time, uh, mid 19th century uh, and, and for decades following, education wasn't a high priority for state government. The implicit argument here is, well, we were not really sure what the 14th Amendment says with regards to education because the record is spotty, even though we know for a fact what was going on in the District of Columbia. So, let's, let's get moving here in, in uh, their argument. 490, right? He says, education of white children at the top was largely in the hands of private groups. Education of Negroes was almost non-existent. Down at the page, compulsory school attendance, something we just take for granted today. What was it? Virtually unknown. In other words, the state did not mandate education. The state wasn't playing a significant role in the schooling of the nation's children. It's not surprising that there should be so little in the history of the 14th Amendment relating to its intended effect on public education. Now, what has changed? Let's move, keep moving forward. Okay, let's look at page 492. Oh, actually, let's, uh, uh, let's skip real quick here to, to just complete this point. On 493, he begins on bottom of 492, we must consider public education in the light of its full development and its present place in American life throughout the nation. Next paragraph, today education is perhaps the most important function of state and local governments, right? It is now, how important is it? We, by law, you have to go to school. It's compulsory. How important is it? Great expend expenditures. You want to know if anything's important to your government? Look at the budget, right? So it's mandated by government, you have to go. And government is spending a lot of money on it. And what do they seek to achieve? One of the things he says is, we're producing citizens. Here we have the government not only telling your kids what they need to know, but shaping their souls, their character. Care education is not just about the mind, it's about the heart. So in other words, if today, and in recent history, government does decide come into the lives of its citizens, especially the lives of its children, in such a palpable way, an expensive way, a high priority type of way, in fact, it's mandatory. Right? Now the question is, how, what, what view should the court take uh, of this? He says, such an opportunity, the end of that paragraph on 493, where the state has undertaken to provide it, is a right which must be made available to all on equal terms. Okay. So now he reintroduces the question. Is it legitimate under the 14th Amendment? Okay. What precedents do they appeal to? Can't appeal to Plessy, because that will take him in the, op uh, in the opposite direction. Cross, Webb versus Painter. Okay. Two, two in particular. Okay, so... He doesn't want to create a conclusion out of thin air. He wants it to look like the court has at least ruled in some respects along the lines that we want to rule today. 
And so what does he point to? Two very recent cases. If you're appealing to a precedent, do you want it to be old or new? Old. old. It's counterintuitive. You're like, oh, well, new's better, right? Uh-uh. A precedent, the longer it's been on the books, the more powerful it is, the more substantial it is. What it essentially says is, boy, we haven't changed it in so long. We've continued to rule under it so long. For us to all of a sudden decide we've been doing it wrong all these years, highly unlikely. Now, Dred Scott, <laughs> Plessy are, 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 are two cases that, that give the light of that, but the, the, the legal thinking here is the longer it's been on the books, the safer your conclusion is going to be because justice shouldn't change. Justice is the same today, yesterday, now and forever. Okay? So the two opinions they appeal to came down in 1950. Remember, this court is ruling in 54. Go ahead. It was back to back. Yes. 1950, and this case came to the court in 1952. So when they first looked at the Brown case, those precedents, man, the ink was barely dry on them. But again, you know, any port in a storm, <laughs> where they're, they're going to try to find uh, an argument here. What do we learn, uh, or what, what, uh, uh, what do they draw from the, the Sweat v. Painter and the McLaurin case that will help them rule uh, that segregation at the K-12 through level is unconstitutional? What do we learn from Sweat v. Painter and McLaurin down at the bottom of 493? Okay intangible factors. Okay. Prior to those cases, to establish a separate but equal uh, decision on, on behalf of a desegregation conclusion, you were trying to prove that the education was unequal. You did it in a number of ways. Brick and mortar, right? One school has air conditioning, the other does not. Curriculum, one school has new books, the other school has the books that they threw out. <laughs> uh, they start moving towards more qualitative, more kind of quasi-intangible stuff by looking at teacher credentials. Their teachers have masters. These teachers are barely literate. Okay. What do we learn in, in, in uh, the law school and the graduate school case here? How does he say? He has a direct quote on 493. He said, the finding that a segregated law school for Negroes could not provide them equal educational uh, opportunities, this court relied in large part on, quote, those qualities which are incapable of objective measurement, but which make for greatness in a law school. And then again, his ability to study, this is the graduate case, uh, his ability to study, to engage in discussions, exchange views with other students, and in general to learn his profession. Okay? So these are two precedents that they appeal to to allow them to consider intangible factors that affect the quality of the education. How does he make, take the step from graduate school to undergraduate school? What's the argument now? It's even more important. Why? Because these the children feel inferior if they're required to go to segregated schools. And why is that more problematic when you're dealing with kids as opposed to adults at graduate school or law school? Mm. Okay. Getting treated unequally in an intangible way if you're an adult, I mean, it's a problem. That's one thing. But when you're in the process of forming the very character of a child, I mean, if you damage, if you mess that up, right, hard to undo, hard to remedy, hard to redress. Uh, 
If you're going to force kids to go to school, if you're going to shape citizens, if you're going to spend a lot of money on it, but especially the fact that the, the, the government mandates it, if government is going to stick its nose in education, it had better do it in a constitutional way. It had better do it in a way that equally protects all who are the recipients. Okay? It's the fact that government has taken on this responsibility that imposes upon them these heavy, these weighty constitutional burdens. So, famous line at the top of that page, 494, right? Such a considerations apply, i.e., these intangible factors, with the added force to children in grade and high schools. To separate them from others of similar age and qualifications solely because of their race generates a feeling of inferiority in a way unlikely, right, that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely ever to be undone. Who's responsible for the feeling of inferiority, according to this court? The states are because they are the ones who are schooling them in this unequal fashion. Okay? Point? Oh, no, it's just my state. Okay. <laughs> Middle of that block quote, right? A sense of inferiority affects the motivation of a child to learn. Segregation with the sanction of law, therefore, has a tendency to retard the educational and mental development of Negro children and to deprive them of some of the benefits they would receive in a racially integrated school system. Whatever may have been the extent of psychological knowledge at the time of Plessy, this finding is amply supported by modern authority. And there's that very pivotal and controversial footnote. Any language in Plessy v. Ferguson contrary to this finding is rejected. Uh, what is the language that's rejected? That underlying fallacy statement of the court in uh, Brown's opinion in the Plessy case. Remember, the Bra Justice Brown said, who's responsible if you as a black person feel inferior as a result of a segregation law? You are. That's your fault. You don't have to read it that way. That law, burdens are imposed on both. Whites can't join you guys just as well as you can't join them. What's the problem? Okay. This court is saying, when little kids feel inferior because they can't go to the school that's closest to them, because that's the school for white kids, you have to go to a black school somewhere else in town. Um, since the state is making you aware of that and is producing that feeling in you, it is the state that is responsible and therefore the state is violating the 14th Amendment. Now, we mentioned the Clark test, or the Clark Dahl test. Um, this test, uh, I don't know, are, are any of you familiar with, with what this test, what did, what, what did the test, how, how did it work? Okay. That was the nice doll, the pretty doll, the one that looks. Now, they did this in what they called mixed schools, we would call integrated schools today, and they did this in quote unquote colored schools. Southern schools for the latter, northern schools for the former. Um, one of the problems uh, with this test, there are a number, there's a host of problems. Almost the, the closer you look at it, the, the less satisfied you are. Uh, the samples were not statistically significant. They were very small. I mean, they, they were, depending on the schools, in terms of their enrollment, some had big enrollment, some didn't. So it wasn't a statistically significant sample in many cases. In some cases, there weren't 
dolls that were actually produced to be brown dolls. So they had to paint white dolls brown. I've got a couple of brown kids myself. Got my wife's white, and she's uh, so I've got a white kid and a couple of brown ones. My brown ones, <laughs> my brown kids. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, they can make dolls, you know, they've got all kinds of dolls now. You want a doll that looks like a zebra, you got it. You know, <laughs> polka dots, they got all the colors, all the races working for them. But back in this day, they didn't have, those weren't mass produced in, in, in the way they are today. My little girl loves dolls. She's girly as girly can be. But she's not going to pick a doll that's white, that's painted to look like her, because anything that wasn't meant to look like her, but tried to after the fact, just looks horrible. So some of these dolls just look ghastly. <laughs> right? Here's the biggest problem. Let's even assume that they were truly cool-looking black dolls and cool-looking white dolls. And let's even assume that these questions were phrased in a way that wouldn't prejudice them one way or another. You know what the results actually showed? The opposite. Guess where the kids felt better about themselves. In other words, guess where the percentage of black kids choosing the white doll as the nice doll was lower? In the kids who felt better about themselves, if that's the conclusion you want to draw from these tests, were the kids in segregated schools. The kids in the northern mixed schools, a higher percentage of them felt if not inferior, it felt uh, bad. Here's just some t t uh, statistics, he says. The, those who requested to play with the white doll. In the north, 72%. In the south, 62%. Smaller percentage. Those uh, that requested, to, uh, uh, requested the nice doll, said, hey, give me the, the nice doll. In the north, 68% chose the white doll, the, the black kids, 52% in the south. Those who said that the colored doll looks bad in the North, 71% in the mixed school. In the South, only 49%. Okay. His study itself, not just the charts, but even the narrative, when he's explaining these results, even in his narrative, he acknowledges that the, the kids in the integrated schools had a lower sense of self-esteem, if you're going to draw that conclusion from the doll test, had a lower sense of self-esteem than the kids in the segregated schools. Okay. So even the very study, one of, they, studied, they, they cited a number of studies, but even the study that they cite as the lead study, Kenneth B. Clark's study, actually establishes the opposite conclusion. Now again, I, I began by telling you that even what he concluded is statistically dubious given the small sample size. But if you want to take that as evidence, uh, the problem here is it actually points in the opposite direction. Uh, I just want to point that, uh, I said that, I said uh, you know, the issue that uh, I think that Professor Wessel uh, wrote out the other time when he mentioned about Mahmoud This is after the, the truth. Now, but the other truth is, the people in, this, in, 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 uh, in African countries, the people that are uh, very close to the Arab area, the desert area, they maintain their culture. They, they, don't, they don't wear suits. Uh, they are very authentic. I mean, in terms of they have a high, high self-esteem. But the people in the South, you know, educated by, you know, by Europeans, who read all the, all the uh, you know, books, uh, 
Western culture, everything is different from uh, white teachers. So we tend to, to wear tie, even in the under under than the twenty degrees, we still put on a three piece suit. Not two piece now, just a three piece. Gotcha. You know? And you know, so it, I think just as you said, now it's showing to me that it's uh, a problem of the self esteem. The people feel that uh, if they don't dress that way, they would not be uh, recognized as well educated. Right. So. Okay. Bill, what does the court con uh, conclude here? Right, 495, uh, what Chair mentioned earlier, right? We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. The claim of the court is, their conclusion is, you can't make separate public schools, schools that are separate on the basis of race, you can't make them equal. You do so physically, but the mere fact that you separate adds an intangible factor that will generate a feeling of inferiority. Um, there's a problem, I would argue, with this conclusion. What does it make the basis of your rights as an American citizen under the 14th Amendment with regards to the question of race? What's the premise here? How do you know if your right has been infringed by your state government, according to this case? By the way it makes you feel? Yes. What if segregated facilities did not generate a feeling of inferiority? According to the Brown case, if by some feat of imagination, let's say 50 years down the road, okay, what if we returned somehow. I don't know how, but what if we returned to a, a, a place? What if, it's, what if a school district tried it? Okay. What if they segregated on the basis of, the ra of race and kids didn't feel inferior? What if blacks only wanted to hang out with blacks and felt great about it? Whites, the same. Native Americans, the same. What if, and again, what if a feeling of inferiority could not be established by the psychological, sociological uh, record, would that be unconstitutional according to Brown? Two points. One, the real world, that anything more happens when they graduate. If they did that now, let's just say, um, I think there'd be a whole host of problems later in life. Um, um, two, uh, on the, the point about the, uh, the test with the, with the babies with Brown versus Ford, um, I think more of the reason for that, uh, that the, the difference in the statistics between the North and the South is that um, the Northern schools, a lot of those kids probably never went to school with black kids. Um, I went to school in New Jersey and I went to school with one black person. Um, so in the South, it was just, you know, had a larger percentage of blacks and I, I would think that, that would be the reason that there would be that difference, not per se that segregation was the interpretation that, that, that you said. Uh, so that's, that's actually another critique of uh, the test, um, which is to say this. Um, aren't there other cues in society that would communicate to a black kid that he's inferior? In other words, is it the public schools that you can blame for that, or is it signs elsewhere in the community? Can't go into Woolworth, can't use the, you know, have to come in the back way. 
Uh, can you blame the schools for something that may just have a number of other causes? Uh, that's, uh, that's, one, that's another critique people had of the court using these uh, statistics the way that they did. Lincoln School District, the president of the school board, has proposed, a black man has proposed three different school districts in the city. Omaha, excuse me. But different on the basis of? Race. Race, yes. White. Oh, I wish, can, can, you do, can you get that? I'd love to have some document or an article that talks about that because that's, this, is a, this is what I do with my students every time. I was like, what is the basis of your rights? Um, I know the black people who, who, were at, who were alive at the time, adults who were alive at the time that this case came down, and they were furious. Not with the conclusion. They didn't like segregated schools. The conclusion was, though, that their rights were based on a question of feelings that it's such a tenuous basis, that, that's what troubled them is that, come on people, we can't even look at the Constitution and determine, you know, they, they were more of the colorblind Constitution mindset, they're more of the Justice Harlan mindset. They didn't want their rights to be based on something as flimsy as evidence rega with regards to feelings. They wanted something more sure. <laughs> Yeah, it, 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 yeah, well, to be sure. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, if it's sadly, too, you can put them in the same room, but you can't make them like each other and you can't make them intermingle. So I'm at a small school, and our, our black population is almost insignificant. We did have some Asians and so forth, but for the most part, in the lunchroom or at break or whatever, it's still segregated. So it has nothing to do with the fact that we're all in the same building now. It's these feelings have not intermingled. Uh, that is true, uh, but I, I will say not so much as a counter-argument, but just as another point of fact. Um, there are accounts of people who grew up in the South, uh, white people, who when they were kids, they thought it was odd that they played together before school. They were playing together after school. They, were invite, you know, they knew each other's families, and they hung out. These were friends. But when it came 7.30 in the morning or 8 o'clock, when they're on their way to school, the white kid was like, well, how come you have to go over there? So that what was integrated in many other ways became disintegrated, haha, became segregated when it came to 8 to 3 o'clock. And that just, the, the kids couldn't make sense of it, whites or black. I mean, blacks knew what was going down, but the whites were like, all of a sudden, those white kids, segregation became really uh, palpable to them. And there was a situation where had segregation not been the case, what would have happened in the lunchroom? The blacks wouldn't have hung out with the blacks. They would have hung out with whoever they played with. Some white, some not, and vice versa. So what you're pointing to are definitely elements that are taking place outside of the school as well. It wouldn't make sense for white and black friends to go to school and then the blacks have to just hang out with blacks, whites just have to hang out with whites. So there's a bigger environment, as it were. Yeah, um, that's a thornier problem because what happens, of course, is this case doesn't um, render relief right away. The court says, now that we've drawn this conclusion, do we really think we can get, in particular, southern federal judges to all of a sudden now 
mandate that all these schools overnight become desegregated schools. They just think, did not think they could get the enforcement uh, that, they, uh, that uh, would be demanded. So they re-argued the case one more time in what was called the Brown v. Board II to decide how to implement it. And then there was that famous passage that I already mentioned to you with all deliberate speed, which Judge, Judge Marshall, or at that, at that time at least, Attorney uh, Marshall said, I know what that means. That means S-L-O-W. But he said it much more <laughs> slowly than that. Uh, so the implementation over time, and people, uh, school districts, say translating all deliberate speed, meaning as slowly as possible, uh, led to the court in the late 60s to start saying, okay, Brown does not require desegregation. It actually requires integration, two different things, and that you would now start busing students to make sure that there were enough blacks in white schools and vice versa. Mark, we're out of time, but we'll just we'll have these two comments and then break. I would have said, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's a question to you. Like, uh, has your, your opinion in general, as people said, rather basing on feeling, like a test, don't test, why do based on? I would have definitely revisited Plessy in a more scrupulous way and exactly. somehow used Justice Harlan's dissent as the basis for a ruling in the modern era. But that's not, I mean, I'm in, in the vast minority. That's not taught at law schools. Uh, the declaration is an interesting point. Uh, it, there are many jurists, both sides of the partisan line. This isn't a conservative issue uh, or a liberal issue. There are many jurists who say, look, you can't use the declaration because it's not a legal document per se, although it is a part of the statutes. It's one of the, what they call it, the organic law of the nation. But yeah, I would, I would I'm, I'm a Lincolnian, so I would, the fragment on the union and the Constitution, I would say, yeah, I would definitely make some appeal. But that couldn't be your only appeal, I would argue. Um, I think it's helpful that on the, we have on the record at least one justice giving us an alternative reading. Yeah. Uh, I would have leaned heavily on Justice Harlan. Yeah. Last comment, and then we'll take a 20-minute break. Yep. And the distinctions and the feelings of inferiority come from the technical realities. Everybody knows which kids get busted. These kids can't stay after school to play. They can't get involved in all of the after school activities. They're not present in community events. They can't be present. Their realities when they mm -hmm. go home are so different from the realities of the kids who live in the Belmont community. Just different worlds. 
Um, so it's it, it creates, you know, yeah, Clarence Thomas has, has said repeatedly, it, it never made sense to him to think that I became smarter as a black person simply because I was sitting next to a white kid. He, he just never bought that. That's just a non-starter with him. And I think for these kids' parents who want their kids in the program, I think I never heard anything from them that indicated we want them in there because they'll be sitting next to white kids. What's more, we want them in there because they're going to be in a class with 20 kids instead of in a class with 40. That's a different. Is that the only way to solve that problem? I don't know that it is. Yeah. Okay. I don't think that it is. I don't think it's an effective way to solve this problem. The fact that that system, which was supposed to be ended in the early eighties, is still going on. Sure. Yep. Okay. Let's get together at eleven o'clock, and we'll go till twelve thirty.